black people don't come from Britain, they come from Africa. So I'm going to respond in the right way. My, my dad's Ghanaian, my mom's Nigerian. How would I answer any other way? Um, and realizing also that many racists in Britain wouldn't consider me British. So in my mind, I was like, cool. I am, <laughs> I am from those places. That's, that's no um, problem in my mind. And I was really grateful to have that heritage as well because It's Lara here and you're listening to Those Nigerians where myself and my lovely co-host will be sharing with you all things exciting and insightful about Nigeria's culture, history, politics, business and all-round entertainment. Keep listening for new stories about the same people. Hi everyone and welcome again to another episode of Those Nigerians. I'm so excited. Um, I've got an amazing co-host with me for the conversation today. Um, hi Evelyn. Hi Laura. <laughs> you sounded like you weren't expecting that. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to be here. Very lovely. I'm so happy to have you on. And as always, I'd love to play a little game with my co-host. And I'm going to just give you two pairings. And all you need to do is choose one. You've got five seconds to choose. So not much thinking, please. Uh, so Ken K or Jollof Rice? Jollof Rice. Tree or Idoma? Tree. Ankara or Kente? Kente. Okay, was that really easy for you to answer for all of those questions? No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. The first one was like pears and apples. They can't be compared. They can't be oh. compared. Okay. I mean, for those who haven't clocked on by now, I've basically made Evelyn choose between a Nigerian choice or a Ghanaian choice because she is from Ghana and she is from Nigeria. And I've often wondered if you always find a bit of a conflict with having to choose between. Do, do you feel conflicted about choosing between the two or is it just like, well, like fish and water? No, I, I, I don't feel conflicted uh, by that question. I think it's always interesting when people ask me that because for me, there is no conflict. It's just who I am. So I, I, I am one. <laughs> it's a united household. So there, there is no conflict. It's usually, obviously there's like banter and rivalry between the two countries. But that's something that um, when I was younger, I had no awareness of. It's only when I went to secondary school and people started talking about that rivalry. And I was quite surprised by it because obviously at home, there's none of that. There's, yeah. there's, there's, no, there's no rivalry. Yeah. Yeah, it's all love out here, man. All love. Um, no, because what I noticed the other day, as I was just thinking about it, I noticed that quite a lot of my friends are in what you might call a multi-ethnic or inter-ethnic relationship or marriage. Um, so you've, I've got friends um, that are Nigerians, married to Zimbabweans, married to Ugandans, married to Kenyans, married to Gambians, married to... Um, white English person, just married to people from all across, you know, 
different parts of the world. And I was just thinking, wow, we're going to have a new generation or more and more generation of people who are just mixed. I'm just thinking, are they going to have, how are these parents firstly even going to deal with trying to ensure that their children understand um, the two sides, you know, of their heritage? Do you see what I mean? And I guess I wanted to have this conversation in particular because I know, like I said, I know a lot of Nigerians now who are married to people from other parts of the world. And I guess with a lot of children being born in the Western country, like, you know, in the UK, America, other parts of the um, of the Western world, it's almost like I've noticed a disconnection um, generally. And I was just wondering, that disconnection is only just going to get wider and wider if we don't make a conscious effort to uh, engage them with the culture. It's a lot easier, I suppose, when, you know, if both parents are Nigerians or if both parents are Ghanaians or both parents are Ugandans, do you know what I mean? As opposed to when you have parents from different parts of the continent. Do you do you think this is even a struggle or is like, well, that's easy peasy, that can be easily done, you know, why it shouldn't really matter? No, I think there, there there's a lot in what you've just said. Um I think as a child of an inter-ethnic um, marriage, I think you do have to make the effort. Um, I don't think, I think that perhaps people can be complacent and think that culture just happens um, mm. and it's just passed on. But like you said, it's something that you have to be intentional about and you have to really make an effort. And one of the ways in which you can do that is through food or through language um, or being intentional in creating communities um, from the various ethnicities. Um, so for me and my experience growing up, my mom is Nigerian, my dad, I'm Ghanaian. They don't speak each other's languages, um, but I, I, my, my mom is from the Idoma tribe and my my dad is Ashanti. Um, they they didn't speak one another's languages, um, and they unfortunately wasn't commonly spoken in the house when myself and my younger brother were growing up. Um, and that's something that I wish had happened. Um, so I think that's a shame. So I think for people getting into those um, type of relationships is really important. Um, to consider that L like it's an opportunity to learn about the other person like learn the other person's language um, because you'll get to know them better because the language is the language is the expression of the heart um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a good way of um, maintaining maintaining that connection with your heritage yeah, no, I totally agree and I think even in terms of like speaking of identity, you know um, as opposed to where you might have a person who is fully from one culture, you now have children that are multi-ethnic and identity is a big thing, like feeling, being able to identify um, with your parents' um, culture and growing up feeling like you are engaged and you understand. Because what I've noticed is that currently there are a lot of people around our age who are 
sort of on a on a journey of discovery. They feel like, oh, my parents never really spoke, you know, the language to us. And now all of a sudden I'm, well, not all of a sudden, but now I'm 25, 30, and they're demanding me to respond back to them in Yoruba or Igbo or Awusa or Tree or whatever the language is. And you're just like absolutely confused or even not having visited the motherland ever or maybe once or twice when you were growing up, when you were 10, and now, you know, 20 years later, you don't even know anything about that. And I was just wondering, like, is it even, as, does, it, does it even matter if I don't identify with my parents' heritage, if I don't identify with my parents' culture? Like, why does any of that matter? Because I'm born here all my life, all my friends, my education, my work my church or if you're religious whatever it's all in one place why why do you feel like people are on this journey of discovery and i speak especially for nigerians because i mean this is a nigerian podcast but i'm sure anyone in other parts of from other parts of africa can totally relate to this but is there a need for that journey of discovery or is there even a need for any sort of cultural identity yeah search? as such i do think there is a need for it especially as um for me as a black british born ghanaian nigerian growing up when people would ask me you know where i'm from um i would answer nigerian and ghanaian um because as um, a young person my I, my idea of ident identity wasn't necessarily as sophisticated as it is now, but when I was younger, um, I, I would say Nigerian, Ghanaian, and not British, because um, a 12-year-old me thought that, um, you know, Black people don't come from Britain, they come from Africa, so... I'm going to respond in the right way. My, my dad's gone in, my mom's Nigerian. How would I answer any other way? Um, and realizing also that many racists in Britain wouldn't consider me British. So in my mind, it was like, cool. I am, <laughs> I am from those places. That's, that's no um, problem in my mind. And I was really grateful to have that heritage as well because of, um, the great resilience and strength that those nations have shown since decolonization. Um, it was always actually a point of um, gratitude uh, and pride to, to, to have those backgrounds because I could hold on to that legacy and I realized that I was, um, I was that legacy actually of um, you know, having the freedoms that I that I have now. So I think it is. Yeah. I, I think it that having that identity is important, especially when you live in a place where um, who you are um, as a British person is always is always a question. The very fact that people ask me where I'm from, and then if, if I was to say London, there would sort of be a quizzical look in their eye, as if are you really from here? Yeah. So identity is really important for people um, who are not the majority in this country. And what are some of the ways that I was just trying to, I'm just trying to think, what are some of the ways in which I guess for 
perhaps some of my friends now who are in these sort of relationships, um, how can they help their children to engage with their culture from early on? So I know that one of the obvious ways, which you know a lot of people instantly point to is language, you know, teaching their children their language, languages in this instance. Um, but what I found though is, you know, growing up, and even in this country, that always almost seems to take a backseat. And it always seems a bit more, it's, it's, it's difficult already when it's just like your both parents are from the same place. But it feels like it's even more difficult when you've got parents from different parts of the continent. Because then that, that was why I was asking you earlier on, is, is there a sense of conflict? Because they almost have to expend their energy trying to choose one or the other, you know, do we teach our children tree or do we teach them Idoma? Do we teach them Yoruba or do we teach them? Um, I don't think it, I don't think it's necessarily a thing of conflict. I think it's something of more effort has to be made on each parent's side. Um, so the way children learn language is often from hearing other, other people speak it. Um, so it's important that people hear the language perhaps from um, television series or radio um, or music and then being spoken to in the language by um, that parent. Um, but do you think I, parents make any effort? Like, do you feel like it's even an investment worth making in the midst of everything else that needs to be done, especially what you think of when you're bringing up a child and all the things you have to teach them, they need to learn the English language to a certain profici um, proficiency. They need to learn their maths and their English and their so many different skills they need to learn. And the parents also probably are working and have so much, so many other things going on. Um, is it, do you feel like many parents really, think of it as an investment that is necessary worth making um, I, think, I think it is a it is see it's interesting you use the word investment so it it may currently in, in global standing Nigerian languages may not be um, deemed a worthwhile uh, pursuit in the sense that it doesn't have the same currency that English or Spanish or French or Mandarin has um, around the world because it's just not as commonly spoken among other peoples. But in terms of ensuring that uh, Nigerians in the diaspora um, have that connection and can identify um, with their heritage, it is vitally important because it's, it is, and language is a way of expressing who you are as a person. And maybe um, Nigerians on the continent, and it's, it's wonderful, you take it for granted that you have that close connection to your heritage. Um, so who, who you are, your very existence is, is, is questioned less um than when you're you're in you're born and raised in Britain 
Um, and then people ask you where you're from and you're then you're then having to figure out what's the, what's the agenda of the person asking the question um and 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 like I don't want to have to to deal with that you know like I know who who I am um like <laughs> what's it to you <laughs> um like where I'm from or or what my heritage is um and yeah you don't want you I I I don't want people to have some sort of like inferiority complex um mm. about um yeah what their heritage is I think I think in, in ensuring that um children speak the language is it is a way of mitigating against an inferiority complex and it's funny you use the word inferiority complex because um <laughs> True story now, growing up in Nigeria, I genuinely had family members. And even till today, I still have family members living in Nigeria, family members and friends who whose parents took so much pride in the fact that their children couldn't speak Yoruba. And not just that they couldn't speak Yoruba, but they took so much pride in the fact that their children could not eat or doesn't like to eat like the local maybe they don't like to eat pounder jam or they don't they don't like to just do certain mm. things that would like automatically affiliate you with your culture mm. whether you're doing that consciously or unconsciously i know for the language part it was a, it was almost like a very conscious effort that was being made and there was a lot of pride in declaring that you know, the child or whoever it was couldn't speak the language. And I always I always felt like, well, obviously when I was younger, I didn't really understand it. But now looking back, I feel like there was always that striving to um to be close and that for that proximity to Western culture. And, you know, like you said, perhaps the currency for Nigerian languages or African languages generally is quite low so a lot of people have come to like see that aspect of identity as if it's got no mm. economic value then I'm not interested mm. what I mean so I've spoken to people I've spoken to like a few parents actually even now and I said oh you're going to teach your children how to speak xyz language and I said well you know the world is a global village now and you know i'm gonna teach mm. them Mandarin and, and spanish and they're gonna learn french but yoruba yoruba what <laughs> what can you buy with yoruba you know <laughs> what can yoruba give you mm -hmm. um, i think there are a lot of things in what you've just said so there's one aspect in that if you if you make the effort to speak um, a Niger if you're of Nigerian heritage and you make the effort to speak a Nigerian language, if you're in Britain, sometimes there, there's a pride that comes from that in the sense that um, the, the legacy of um, colonialism has meant, has inflicted some sort of inferior complex on us and the way in which to reclaim the power over our identities is to speak the language um, and show pride in that. There's that aspect. 
then um, the example you give with um, Yoruba parents having pride in their in their children not speaking it, I think is evidence of that the legacy of that inferiority complex in that you know for hundreds of years you know the racists of Britain have have, have mocked the language and and so for some reason that has been internalized in that there's a constant um, narrative that English is the language of progress. English is the language of innovation. Eng English is the language of business. And there, there is a political, um, um, social political element to that. So you want to now be associated with the privileges that come with English. So if your, if your child or if you can speak English, um, quite fluently, um, with like a southern, a particular southern English accent, because I'm not sure that anybody wants um, their, their child to, to speak like a northerner, you know? There's that class issue as well. Not that there's anything wrong with a northern accent, but, you know, there, there's a, that's even a, a, a slight <laughs> deviation, but there's there's an aspect of class with that. Then, um, then, things in life are, are better for you. And while the global system still favors um, English, um, people who are racialized as white, um, then that is, the, that is the language or that is the, the, the type of identity that most people want to be associated with as a way of um, escaping the um, oppression or um, negative impacts um, of, of colonialism. Yeah, I feel like, you know, with language, we can literally have this whole episode just talking about the impacts of language, the nuances around, you know, white people choose or prefer certain languages over others and especially with the English language you know you've delved a little bit on the history of it and why um, it has the kind of impact that it has now but just going back to the multi-ethnic family that I've used as an example to begin with and the effort to um, engage their children in their culture moving away from language because I feel like that's one of the very obvious thing to mention what other ways do you think that a child can be engaged with that, you know, without language, for example? So does it does does cultural identities end and begin begin and end with, with language? Or are there other things that parents can do? Because what you what you need to realize is that sometimes some of these parents, especially in our generation, are not even very proficient in their own mother tongue. So how can you teach your child now that you don't even understand yourself? What can you teach that child about your language? You know, that may not be their fault for whatever reason, but so I don't want anyone listening to think, well, you know, I can't speak my language. So what am I gonna do now when I have my own child? There are other ways. Because one of the one of the things that comes comes instantly to my mind is, well, you can watch. So, so for with Nigeria, for example, maybe you can watch Nollywood together. You can watch African 
produced films, um, films produced in your country where they speak the language and perhaps you can learn it together. Perhaps you can even, um, the other day I went somewhere with a friend and we went to this um, couple's house and when we, you know, entered, the children came to the door and then they knelt down to greet us while the girl knelt down and the boy prostrated. And these are like, you know, they were born and bred here. And they're like, oh, hello, auntie, hello, uncle. And my friend was really surprised, was like, wow. Um, really? <laughs> like, whoa, these children, how did they know to, you know, he was... It was so impressive, not because obviously it doesn't, it wouldn't have mattered if they didn't kneel or if they didn't prostrate, but it was just such a cultural thing. Like mm -hmm. it just showed that, oh, wow, they're so engaged. Like their parents made that effort to at least, because that's how you can easily identify, oh, this is a Yoruba, this kid's a Yoruba, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. or I don't know, um, just a variety of different things that, I think parents not can do. What do you reckon? I think, yes. Well, for me growing up, <laughs> watching Nollywood was not something funny um, <laughs> when it comes to me. <laughs> no, because for me growing up, Nollywood, there were a lot of like quite scary, scary Nollywood um, films, you know, that that juju music, the, the piano, dun, dun, just lasting forever. <laughs> it's not something I necessarily wanted to um, watch, but I think the, the contents and the quality of um, Hollywood films or um, series has um, greatly improved. And there's a far more variety that even people in the diaspora can um, connect with. Um, but I think in terms of those gestures um, of if you're Yoruba, the, the kneeling and the, the curtsying and the prostrating um, is important. Um, and th that comes from, you know, like your parents being embarrassed that you're not showing <laughs> proper respect. So when you if you just greet, you know, an auntie or an uncle or an elder, anyhow, when you get home, you're getting a telling off. Um, so that's that is important obviously it comes with the food but i think i think what's important is making it seem your your culture seem cool um and i, I suppose that can even that, that that might lead on to some other the other questions around how african cultures nigerian culture is viewed now especially among you know 20 something year olds 30 something year olds um because, you know, Afrobeats is very popular now. Um, and there are, a lot, there are a lot more Nollywood um, films, actually, that are a lot more popular amongst younger generations now. It's cool, you know, the WizKids, the, the Burner Boys. It's, it's, it's cool to listen to their music and they're really successful on the world stage, you know, being nominated for Grammys and BET Awards, etc. Um, so... I think that's something that is coming more and more to the forefront. Um, and, I, I, and I think it's becoming, I think that's actually a really interesting dynamic and point because um, the, in, in, in their music, you'll hear, um, you'll hear Pigeon, you'll hear Yoruba, 
strangely that you, you'll hear even patois on an attempt at that. Um, <laughs> so um, that's one of the ways I think that culture and language is, is being reinforced in, in the diaspora. And I think that's an important aspect. And definitely interesting you should mention um, Afro music because I was going to say, you know, for people of our generation, you know, in their 20s and early 30s, they're about, there's definitely a lot more engagement with culture via Afro music or Afro beats. So even if you don't understand the language, even if you've never been to Nigeria, even if you don't really eat any African food at home, quite a lot of people now are so happy and they, they take a lot of pride in associating themselves with Afro beats and, and the music coming out of the continent. And I guess that is due in many regards to the, to the kind of success that has been associated um, with that genre of music. Um, but my only reservation is I hope that that doesn't start and end with Afro music. Like, so you're, the only engagement you have with culture is like, oh yeah, Burna Boy, yeah, 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 or Always oh, Kids or um whoever else, or Tiwa Savage or whoever else is um is popping on the on the on the scene these days. Um yeah, that'll be, you know, that'll be I feel I feel like that would be disingenuous. Um but moving on, <laughs> do you think there's a way to and I'm saying this because when I've met strangers and they've asked me where I'm from and I've told them Nigeria, there's one thing they've always said, which I'm going to say in a bit, but I want to ask you, do you think there's a way to like see somebody and just tell, like, do you think there's certain traits about Nigerians that whether <laughs> they're in America, whether they're in, <laughs> whether they're in Russia, wherever in the world they are, you can just see a Nigerian and be like, yep, she's Nigerian. Yep, he's Nigerian. Um, that's a very interesting question. I am probably going to say no. And the reason why I say that is because when I traveled around, well, I guess it I guess is is the question okay, when I when I traveled, um when people when other black people see me. Um, and try to guess where I'm from. I have gotten Dominican. I have gotten Jamaican. <laughs> um, I've gotten I've gotten Ghanaian. I don't think I've I've gotten um, Nigerian. Um, so I'm not sure that you can you can just tell. Um, not just looks though because it could even be through like their mannerisms or because for example so I'll tell you um I mean this has happened to me on many occasions but one of the occasions that I remember very clearly was um I was the train station where I commute to work every day um there's a guy there one elderly guy really and engages me in the conversation it's like oh where are you from blah 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 and I was like oh I'm, I'm Nigerian it's like oh, no way you know it's like oh but you're not you're not loud you're not you're not you know you seem so calm <laughs> so cool you know like you're not like and then it started to mimic some sort of like mm. you know like, uh, I was just like whoa you know the, and 
many times I've actually met people who have said to me, oh, but you're, you look so calm and you're too calm to be Nigerians because Nigerians are always like all over <laughs> the place. And, and they're so loud and they're so boisterous. And this. I'm just like, well, that's a lot of generalization to begin with and a lot of ignorance in that statement because obviously people are different across boards generally and they was like oh you look more like your Ghanaian because Ghanaians are really cool and you know they're very soft spoken and, <laughs> and like, I haven't met that many Ghanaians to I don't I haven't met many Ghanaians to do a comparison or to know whether that I'm just like no matter what culture you're from you can't just make that blanket generalization although to some extent I feel like certain things can be said and you know to be true um mm-hmm. but I guess based on repetition and uh, yeah, I I I don't I don't think like stereotypes are true. It's just like they're not true for everyone. So um, the stereotype the stereotype that like Nigerians are loud. I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to compare that because <laughs> like my household was not a, lo- a loud household um that's so that, yeah that's really interesting you know can you tell from from somebody's behavior but you see th- this this is a thing though because yourself and I are of a, of a of a generation where this stereotype of loudness may be tempered by you know that British um mm. quietness or over politeness or or whatever so our flavor of Nigerian might be a bit different to to what is expected because we are our our experience of the culture is is shaped by our context of being in the UK um so I think it 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 might it might actually become more and more difficult to to tell um you know like who is Nigerian or what is Nigerian just by like a quick interaction um but I mean that's that's even like a a bigger you know (laughs) of like how do you define define Nigerian you know a a country made up of of hundreds of tribes how how do you even deal that question I mean domestically in the in the in the country that's a, that's a point of contention. That is a that is another episode topic, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that is another conversation entirely. But you know what? I think this has been. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we could really, literally, go on for a bit more, and there's still be so many grounds to cover. Um, but I just think it was really important to bring a bit more consciousness and awareness to. Uh, to what we've got going on in our current society and just I guess for me when I just thought about it and realized the diversity we have now in our community like you know we as a generation growing up and now starting to have kids what effort are we going to be making in um in engaging our children with that culture especially like you said earlier on you know we live in a world now where there's racism and you know you never truly feel like you belong because there's always something to remember to remind you something done something said consciously unconsciously but I guess beyond that beyond it being like a mitigating or you know just in case you're never accepted in in Mm. England 
you know i think beyond that is the fact that it's something to be, to take pride in it's not it's it shouldn't have to be restricted to the economic value that you can gain from it or you know we shouldn't have to be striving for the proximity to westernization i can you can i can understand for like parents who live in the west and there's so much engagement and involvement and there's so um they're just so embedded within the system as opposed to like, you know, you live in Nigeria, you were born there, you were raised there, all of your life is there. And I look back at some of my family members and friends, I'm just like, I don't understand how you can live in the country and not speak the language or you're making so much effort to sound nothing like where you're from or look nothing like where mm. you're from. Um, but yeah, so this has been interesting. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. And I hope that you will come back again, actually, and we would have another conversation um, around this. But before I let you go, I want you to tell me what is the one thing you're so proud of about your Nigerian heritage? Hmm. Um... <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I think Nigerians are truly like industrious and entrepreneurial um, people. Um, I, I, I feel as though there's a great uh, resilience um, amongst Nigerian people, um, and I'm, I'm always like. I follow a lot of like entrepreneurial business people um, from Nigeria on Twitter and um, sort of like seeing their vision and their ingenuity and their creativity um, on, on Twitter is so like insightful and inspirational and makes me want to also, um, you know, um, emulate that, um, that sort of like business savvy, um, you know, creating opportunity, um, creating opportunities um, for people. So I think that's something that I'm really happy to 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 be associated with, to have um, to have in in my life. And I think there are just many beautiful cultures. Um, yeah, there are many beautiful cultures um, that are, that are, are that exist um, in the country, and I think it's a wonderful way to um, learning about those. It's a wonderful way to like build empathy and connect with people, um, and that's something that I'm I'm always like eager to learn more of. So um, yeah, those are a few things that um, yeah I love about Nigeria. Splendid. Well. Thanks, Evelyn, for joining me on this episode. It's been amazing having you on. Um, your insight has been fantastic 
and I really feel like we've only just scratched the surface so I really look forward to having you back on another episode for another interesting conversation so thank you thank you for coming now moving on to the next segment of this episode where I'm going to be sharing with you guys a very interesting piece of Nigerian history which you probably didn't know before and if you did know probably not the whole story so keep listening So, um, guys, this podcast is going to be published on the 12th of June, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to actually share a bit of Nigeria's history regarding this particular date, um, seeing as this episode was all about culture and engaging with culture. And one of the best ways to engage with culture, essentially, is to know your history, right? So... In June 2018, President Buhari declared June 12 to be Democracy Day in Nigeria. But before then, Democracy Day used to be the 29th of May. So what is Democracy Day? Essentially, it's a public holiday that marks the day the military handed over power to an elected civilian government, which was in 1999. And the first president um, to be elected then was President um, Olusegun Obasanjo. He took over after many decades of military rule in Nigeria. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard of Abacha, General Abacha. If you haven't, where have you been? (laughs) Uh, He was basically the last military ruler in Nigeria um, under, under the dictatorship of the military. And his death was really controversial. You really want to find out more about that in my book called uh, Nigerians of Interest. You can get that on Amazon. Anyway, I just thought I'd get that in there. So moving on, you're probably wondering, why did President Buhari decide to change Democracy Day from May 29th to June the 12th? Well, it's all because of a man named MKO Abiola. In 1993, MKO was the presidential candidate that many Nigerians believed was going to bring hope to Nigeria. He had a lot of plans and ideas on how to bring the, on how to take the country forward. And although not everyone um, believed in him or bought into his ideas, but for the general masses, um, you know, people loved him. And this was reflected in the votes. So it was reported that over 14 million Nigerians voted for him and he won 58.4 of the popular vote, which was a majority in 20 out of 30 states, making him the winner of the election in June 12, 1993. So this was going to be a fairly easy, you know, straightforward. Here's a clear winner. Um, The opposing candidate accepted defeat and congratulated Abiola, but Nigeria had a different idea. The government had a different idea. The new beginning that Nigeria was hoping for and rooting for was not forthcoming. The military were not having it. Even though they had initially agreed that Nigeria was ready for a democracy, hence why the election took place, um, but any hope of Abiola MKO being announced as the president was terminated. Everybody was shocked. Uh, locally and internationally, 
that election was judged to be the freest, the fairest and peaceful election in the history of Nigeria. So why the change? What happened? As you can imagine, uh, Nigerians were not happy and this led to a protest asking the government to uphold the election results. Long story short, the government said, nah, it's not happening. They put another man in leadership, the man being Chief Ernest Shunikon. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Um, they put him in leadership as a temporary measure until they decide what they were going to do um, with regards to another election. Chief Shenekon was only there for three months. He was only in power for three months before he resigned. And I say resigned in quote because many people believe that he was basically chased away from 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 um, leadership, from power. And it wasn't too long before Abacha, um, General Abacha hijacked power after a military coup that declared him as head of state. Now, any hope of democracy was slowly fading away. Don't forget that Abiola, MKO Abiola was still in the background trying to ensure that the government um, puts into action the results of the election of 1993. So he wasn't giving up. And in June 1994, um, before a crowd of about 3,000 people, MKO Abiola declared himself president and commander-in-chief of the Federal Republic of Nigeria in um, his, one of his famous speeches titled um, Enough is Enough. And in that speech, he asked Abacha to gently, meaning to gently hand over power and there will be no trouble. But Abacha said, laye, laye, meaning never. Abacha began to terrorise people, a lot of people, essentially, including those who were supporting Abacha, um, sorry, including those who were supporting um, MQ Abiola, he's begun to terrorise them, people like Professor Wale Shoyinka, who had gone into exile in Paris um, for his own safety. Abacha put Abiola in prison eventually in 1994 until his death in 1998. So both Abacha and Abiola died in 1998 and the powers that be found an ally in the person of ex-president Obasanjo. Now I, I wrote extensively about this history of Nigeria and especially about MK Abiola in my book um, Nigerians of Interest so if you really want to find out more I would encourage you to get the book. I wrote about a few other people in that book as well. So Anyway, most people agree that without the sustained struggle of June 12, Nigeria most likely would still be wobbling under military dictatorship. So for years after MK Abiola's death, many people appealed to the government that June 12 be declared Democracy Day instead of May 29th. But this was sidelined for many reasons, obviously many political reasons, because Nigeria did not want to recognize the 1993 election as a valid one so for many years they ignored the plea and this was sidelined until two years ago when president buhari made the declaration with an apology to mko's family and he conferred mko with the great commander of the federal republic award now this is an award that is reserved for former presidents so 
that's how June 12th came to be uh, the Democracy Day in Nigeria. So it's only been celebrated for two years now. Um, this is the, the second year. Um, and, you know, thousands of Nigerians lost their lives alongside MKO Abiola in the struggle for the justice and fairness that accompanies democracy um, that they desperately craved and which many Nigerians now enjoy. Um, and even though that democracy is not perfect yet, at least we have a democracy and hopefully things can only progress. It's been 21 years of democracy. It's not been that long, but it's been long enough for us to have substantial changes in Nigeria. And that is what essentially a lot of people are hoping for. And day by day, you know, we're taking step towards a better, a better Nigeria. So that's the end of my short history lesson or my short history um, note on June 12th and Democracy Day in Nigeria. But I really would say, you know, it's a very interesting history. You should check it out, um, find out more and engage your children and everyone can learn along. But yes, thank you guys again for listening to this podcast, to this episode. Um, as usual, you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts from, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, iPlayer, um, Anchor podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at those Nigerians. Um, if you like this episode, please share with your friends and family and get the word out there to as many people as possible. Until next time, when I come again with another amazing episode, thank you for listening. Bye.